Hello and welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, this week's episode is volume three of my Great Rock Stories series. Try saying that after a few. Volume one and two both got a great reception, so four months after the last one was released, number three is here. I've had so many great guests on the show over the last, what, nearly two years or so I've been doing the show, and I know not everybody listening right now has probably checked out every single episode, and that's okay. So this is just a nice way to not only highlight the old interviews, but also maybe open up some eyes or ears to a new audience too. Now, I know you've been patiently waiting for new interviews, and in the true sense of transparency, it has been a dry patch for sure. I've had uh, a month or so off, as usual I do in the summer, take a bit of a break, see the family, spend time with the kids, that sort of thing. But coming back, all my contacts are telling me the same kind of thing. And you'll know yourselves probably too, any band worth their salt right now are either on tour, just about to go on tour, or have just finished being on tour and are taking a break. The festival season is still in swing. There's so many big-name acts that are playing live dates right now just to make up for what happened during the pandemic. But I do manage to have a couple scheduled for you coming shortly. It may just mean that my regular weekly schedule of releases may be punctuated with a couple of gaps here and there. But that's okay. we'll get there. You'll still get some fantastic rock stories to come over the next few weeks. But before we get into some of the best rock stories from our earlier episodes, Volume 3, a couple of shout-outs as usual. A big hello and thanks to Martin Quibell, Martin messaged me on Instagram last week when the This Day Rocks episodes resumed to say, Welcome back to podcasting, Paul. You're killing it as always. Very kind words. Thank you, Martin. You can check out Martin on social media at Pods Like Us. Keith Borlay has also been in touch to say he was pleased to hear This Day Rock shows were back. And Amanda Forbes messaged as well this week to say she's just discovered Vintage Rock Pod, loves the few interviews she's heard so far, and can't wait to listen to more. Very, very kind words indeed. As always, please do reach out. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll hopefully give you a shout-out on a future episode. Speaking of This Day Rocks, I'm glad to see you're still enjoying these mini-episodes that I release every single day except for Mondays. If you haven't given them a listen yet, basically they're, as you'd expect really, a quick look back on a big event in rock from that day in history. We get some birthdays, maybe remember some stars that passed away, and then talk about something that happened, a major album release, an iconic festival, a breakup, a formation perhaps, the number one from that day, something different all the time. Now, on these episodes, you'll hear clips from classic rock stars, fellow podcasters, journalists, and fans as well who help share the memory of that moment. Now, the episodes are super short. They're just three to five minutes in length, usually, so you can easily fit them into your daily routine, whether that's as you make your morning coffee, on a short break at work, while you brush your teeth at night, something like that. Something dead quick and entertaining and easy to consume every single day for you. So with that said, let's get on to today's episode then. And I've got seven rock stars from hard rock to prog, some Brits, North Americans and a Dutchman as well. You'll hear about the scene in the late 60s when the hard rock movement was coming through. You know, Sabbath purple, that sort of thing. You'll hear the story behind a crazy sounding hit, what it was like to be a fan of a band and then join it, crossing the Atlantic to live in London and team up with prog legends Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer, and about having the number one album in America in 1980. But we're going to start with a story about 
upsetting Rod Stewart and the faces. Yes, in episode 21, I interviewed Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Steve Fossen, founding member of the band Heart, along with Anne and Nancy Wilson, of course. And in this clip, he tells a great story of how they went from despair to elation, and then they upset the faces at a gig. I'd just like to hear little stories, if, if you don't mind, Steve, as well. There was one in particular where you were playing at a club when you mentioned you, you turned up and you maybe did a week or a couple of weeks, but there was one club where you, you got fired from. But that kind of led to the biggest gig of your career at that stage with, yeah. with Rod Stewart in the faces, didn't it? Yeah, that's true. We we had finished Dreamboat Annie and uh, Mike uh, DeRozier and Howard Lease had joined the band. Andy, and of course, uh, Nancy and Ann and Roger and I were there too. We'd been there for a while, but so we... Uh, packed up our gear and we went to Calgary, Alberta, and we played, I think it was called the Inferno. And uh, we set up, you know, on a Monday night or what Tuesday night or whatever. And we got this kind of a weird vibe from the owner. And we were kind of, wow, oh, this is weird. So we played Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And uh, things just, uh, the owner was just not digging it at all didn't feel right yeah. so he came to us at the end of the night and said listen you guys aren't working out here i'd like to get another band in here on the weekend and we went you know we were all like oh my god that's the first time we've ever been let go of a gig ever <laughs> and uh you know so we were all going like oh geez and we were really embarrassed because that was one of the first gigs that uh, mike derosier and howard lease had played with us and they were going like what the hell i just joined this band and we get fired you know within a week so uh we're all, we hung our heads and we're all going back to the hotel and everything. And we're kind of embarrassed to look at each other and talk and stuff. But a little while later, we get this call for a meeting. And so we go over to uh, Ann and, and Mike, who, Mike Fisher, who was Roger's older brother, and uh, said, well, we just got a call from the record company and they wanted to know if we could get out of our obligation to play this weekend. And we went, and they went, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> we got fired and they said okay we have a chance to open up for rod stewart and the faces in montreal and toronto you know we couldn't believe it so we get to montreal and you know we're all going hey let's get some crates <laughs> i don't know why we thought that but later on that afternoon we went to the stadium and uh, did started our sound check and we're all going like oh, this is a big pl-. you know it's the Montreal, I guess, I don't know what it's called, the Forum or the Coliseum or whatever it was. It was their mm-hmm. big hockey rink, you know, yep. the 15, 16,000 people or whatever. We're thinking, oh, but, you know, we know what we're doing, so let's not worry about it too much. So we get it ready for the show and we get on stage and uh, they introduce us and, you know, we look out and it's, I mean, it's packed. Floors packed, the seats are packed, and you know, all the way up to the top of the, the last row, everybody's mm-hmm. there. And we, yeah. so the first song we played was uh, Magic Man. And when we got done with Magic Man, the place just went nuts. And uh, and we were going, and I get chills right now just thinking about it. And I, you know, I went to myself, oh, oh wow, this is something's going on here. Yeah, what a feeling. And uh, so, you know, we really owed a big debt of gratitude to the faces and Rod Stewart for allowing us to open up for him. But at the same time, we we were a good band and we knew what we were doing. So we knew that that's what we wanted to do was impress big audiences. And I guess we did. Certainly did. And it went from strength to strength. But just in terms of the faces and Rod Stewart, did you get to hang out with the guys and get to chill with them? (laughs) Not really. No. (laughs) Uh, What happened was uh, during the sound check, 
uh, Roger Fisher had set, you know, you know that Rod Stewart's and the faces, they always had white yep. drums, white guitars, white piano, white amps and all, you know, everything was white. And Roger Fisher set his cigarettes on uh, the white <laughs> oh. piano. And uh, <laughs> so we got done with our set and we're, we're sitting in the back room congratulating ourselves and the roadies from uh, the faces came back and were just irate. They said, what the heck happened to the piano? So uh, <laughs> it set Roger back a few bucks to get that piano refinished. It kind of ruined the relationship with, with uh, the faces at that point. That's a shame. That's a shame. The lovely Steve Fossen there. He's very open and honest in that interview, especially around the Hall of Fame induction and the atmosphere around the Wilson sisters in the lead up. It's well worth checking that out in full on episode 21. Next up, we're going to hear from a man who was a pivotal part of a band who had the biggest selling album in the US in 1982, topped the Billboard chart for nine weeks. I am, of course, talking about Asia. And in this clip, Asia star Jeff Downs talks to me about that crazy early period with the group. The success for Asia came really, really quickly, didn't it? I mean, take it back to the start, because I heard that Richard Branson was trying to sign you up to, to his label, wasn't he, originally? But you, you ended up going with Geffen. What was, what was the reason behind that? Well, I think originally John Kolodner, who was the A&R guy at Geffen Records, who was sort of well-known for uh, Foreign and when he was at Atlantic and places like that, and David Geffen brought him in as the main A&R guy for his, uh, his new label. And uh, I think he tried to put together a band... Funny enough, I think with uh, with Rick and with John Wetton and uh, and, and uh, I think Carl Palmer as well. So that that was going to be the foundation of that. Anyway, that didn't happen uh, when um, when the idea was still sort of hovering around there, and uh, uh, we, we we finally put Asia together the way it ended up being. You know, we must, Steve brought me in and. Uh, Steve had been working with John Wett and then Carl Palmer came over. So it was, um, you know, th that was the, the, the core of what we were working on at the time. And, and of course, we were then looking for a record deal. And I think Geffen had uh, certainly maintained an interest. But at the same time, uh, Richard, I remember Richard Branson walking into our rehearsal room in Shepherd's Bush. Uh, and there were about <laughs> six guys all behind him, all from various departments at Virgin Records. And, you know, he was like the Pied Piper and all these these people were kind of following him. He was the head of publicity or whatever. And they came in there and they, <laughs> they um, you know, they sat down said, this is great, 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 great. And they made an offer for uh, for the band just for the UK. But but I think uh, we were much more interested in in going global. Mm -hmm. And so when, when Geffen came back in again and said, look, we want you guys for the world, uh, that was a whole new a whole new ball game and uh, so we went with Geffen in the end. Absolutely and you talk about going for the world you, you certainly did and that first album was incredible it went boom especially over in America it was number one for nine weeks four times platinum huge radio play and it was just uh, incredible wasn't it? It was it wasn't you know it wasn't just heat at the moment as well we, 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 you know the other tracks we were four or five of the album tracks were all over rock radio in America so yeah. it was pretty much ubiquitous uh, across the states anyway and um, uh, it, we, we had a tour booked, quite a small tour. When I say small, it was a college year, so we were maybe about 20, 25 shows, something like that, in the, in the college towns, you know, because that was where the interest had started to build up. And, uh, and 
you know, by the time we we started the tour, the album had just flown up the charts, and we were, I think, when we started the tour, we were like number five in the charts, and the next week we were number one, and then we stayed down for the duration of that um, of that whole tour. So yeah, it was it was it was a huge uh, leap up from, you know. Where, where we put the album together at the studio in Shepherd's Bush and um, in London, and uh, uh, it was great times. You know, I think that you can't predict what's going to happen. We didn't know that it was going to be as big as it was. But you know, having said that, I think that we had a great we had a great team. We had uh, a heavy commitment from the band. I think our songs, particularly that John Wetton and I had written for the album, you know, were very powerful radio play songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they Geffen because it, we were the first band signed to the label. They were pulling out all the stops to get us played on this, that, and you know wherever. And and by that time, of course, MTV was uh, in full swing, and um, we, we seemed to be uh, the flavour of the year, as it were. <laughs> And you can hear more stories from Jeff's time in Asia, yes, his work with Downs Braid Association and the early stories of his time with Trevor Horn in the group The Buggles as well. You know, video killed the radio star and all that. Yep, that's Jeff. Episode 18 for all that. Check it out. Linking nicely to Asia is my next clip. Robert Berry hit the big time in the 80s when he joined forces with former Asia star Carl Palmer and Carl's former ELP bandmate Keith Emerson as well, as they formed the group Three. In this clip, Robert talks to me about that time. You're obviously American, as we can tell from your accent, but you, you do have roots to, to the UK, don't you? You moved to the UK, and, and that's where you, you met some incredible um, musicians and artists, didn't you? I actually got called right here in the studio where we're talking right now from Carl Palmer in 1986, I think it was. Wow. And uh, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> and I thought it was a friend of mine playing a joke on me, so I was very, oh, like with you, oh yeah, Paul, yeah, sure, you're in Scotland, yeah, right. Oh, how's the how's the weather? You go, no, really, you show me outside. I go, oh my god, that's what happened with Carl. He goes, well, I'm at the Geffen Records office with John Kalodner, who was the guru of so many things. Yeah, and he's the one that brought me to England, downtown, right there in London, actually, first time to try to find a couple guys to start a band with. We couldn't get the right combination, and it wound up that Steve Hackett from Genesis had left GTR where he and Steve Howe from Yes, they made this band. And Steve Howe liked my cassette tape that Carl had. And Steve asked me to join GTR. So I did that for a year, had a little problem with the singer. And I thought, you know, I can't live my life in unfriendly territory, even though Steve and I got along great. He's a lovely guy. I I have just the highest praise for him. And the songs we wrote, some of the best that I've ever been involved in. But I quit because I, you know, Young age, I said, there's something better. Well, Keith Emerson wanted to have lunch. So I spent another year then with Carl and Keith. Incredible. Downtown, you know, Kensington High Streets where I lived. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was an amazing time for me. A guy that had a band that had a record contract, a band called Hush in out of California and did a little something, but never really cracked it, you know. And all of a sudden, here I am working with my heroes. Uh, pretty cool. Very cool indeed. I mean, ELP were absolutely huge. And as you say, they were working with Carl Palmer and the wonderful Keith Emerson and and you, and you became the band three, didn't you? Yes. And, you know, ELP was accused of being very pompous by a lot of people. So we wanted the most unpompous name you can think of. The manager came. (laughs) What about three? Oh, that's pretty unpompous, right? The problem with the letter, the, the number three is 
everything's cataloged by letters, right? I mean, there's no three oh, yeah. inside A, B, C, D, three, D, E, F, you know. So it was a little bit hard to find, still is hard to find, but I think they, they put things maybe under my name now instead of uh, 3.2, which is the new moniker for that <laughs> band. Anyway, <laughs> so you obviously enjoyed your time um, working with with the guys and, and the album that came out that followed and the big tours and everything like that. I mean, how was that for you? Like you said, you came over from from America and then all of a sudden you're working with these two heroes in in the UK. Yes, it, interesting enough. I mean, we had a number nine song on, on the Billboard charts, toured the United States, but we never played Europe or, or Japan. Where oh. Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, huge, especially Keith was huge. Yeah. Um, they, you know, we did that year. We, we did very well with the record. They'd had a lot of criticism because the ELP fans didn't want Keith playing songs like Carl had done in Asia. See, Carl didn't get criticized. He already yeah. done Asia. That was okay for Carl. Keith got criticized a lot. <laughs> so he, that was hard on him. He broke up the band because of that. And we never played Europe, Japan, you know, wherever else, Brazil. I mean, I was so looking forward to it. I will say that to play with Keith Emerson gives you a stamp of approval that maybe yes. no other musician could give you. You know, he is the best of the best, so dedicated, such a great musician, plays the hardest material, is, is the, was the nicest guy, funny guy, everything. People just loved him. So when they find out, hey, you play Keith Emerson, yeah, hey, you, you want to give it a try over here? You know, yeah, it happened with the band Ambrosia with me. You know, I, I joined them as a singer singing Blue-Eyed Soul stuff, which has nothing to do with Keith, but they thought, well, if he's good enough to do that and he says he can sing this stuff, we ought to give him a try, you know? That was an amazing time for me. That was Robert Berry there from episode 24. Such a nice guy. And that links us nicely to our next guest too. Robert has been working with Greg Kinn, helping produce Greg's new music. And I caught up with Greg last year to hear his wild stories. As you'd expect from a man who spent 18 years as a breakfast DJ in America, Greg is ever the showman. And I'll be honest, it's one of my favourite interviews today. I certainly laugh more during that chat than I did during any other, put it that way. In this clip I'm going to play you now, you'll hear about one of his big hits and about a mix-up with Bruce Springsteen and Squirrels. Breakup song, it was the one that, that really, I mean, you guys had put, you'd released, what was it, six albums or so by this point, and you you're big in the area, but Breakup Song really catapulted you massive, didn't it? Yeah, you know, there were a lot of uh, uh, albums that... Uh... That were made. God, how that was? I think our sixth or seventh album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when we finally hit with uh, the breakup song, and the breakup song was really <laughs> interestingly enough, it was the chorus of one song and the uh, verses from another song. And I had uh, these these chunks of songs, and uh, and I remember Steve Wright, the bass player, s- saying, "Let's take." the uh chorus of this one and put plugging in with the verses of this one and see if it's a song i thought i was going to be in trouble because i didn't have enough lyrics to stretch through a whole song so i was just singing uh 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 uh, uh. <laughs> which was you know kind of a face a space filler you know it's just uh, it was a marker there and uh i went in the studio and i think it was about two days later to record the song and I hadn't written any lyrics, so I just stayed with the uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. Uh, 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 uh. And ironically, that was what everybody remembered the, about the song. And uh, yeah. 
<laughs> I think uh, the fact that it translates into any known language <laughs> probably helped it along. It was a big hit in Japan. Who who would figure, you know? <laughs> they could sing along. That was one of the reasons, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And another fun story I heard you once tell was is one that I'd love to hear again now. Um, it concerns uh, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, uh, Rendezvous, oh, yeah. and Squirrels. Can you fill us in? What yeah. connects them? <laughs> well, uh, uh, Springsteen was a fan and used to show up at our gigs. You know, and we were playing at the Roxy uh, in L.A. And uh, Springsteen just kind of showed up out of the clear blue sky. And and uh, he, he said, you know, I, I got another song that I guys would like to try. Uh, it's called Rendezvous. And it's not been recorded yet. And. This would have probably been a born to run outtake. Okay. Uh, that was the era. Yeah. Um, I remember doing it and, and thinking to myself, Springsteen's not really known for his diction. Okay. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> and I, it was very hard to understand him on that sometimes. <laughs> and so uh, he wrote down the lyrics to rendezvous with, on a napkin from the Roxy, which I put it in my pocket. We had to do a second show and it turned into white pulp. <laughs> Just white. Anyway, so I, I, I called to uh, Springsteen's office and I asked John Landau, could you send me the real lyrics? I, I, I have no idea what I'm singing here. He's no, no problem. So he sends me <laughs> a, another tape of Springsteen doing the song. And I swear the second verse to me, it's because I played it for, everybody yes yeah uh it sounded like he was singing we desire so much more than squirrels <laughs> and i think hmm, that's that's interesting well anyway so i recorded it just like he did you know you've got to do it with the springsteen yeah. touch it we desire so much more just kind of <laughs> let that last note kind of dissipate and uh about two months later, when the when the record comes out, Springsteen calls me and he goes, man, there ain't no squirrels in that song, dude. <laughs> so, I don't, you know what the real uh, lyric was? We desire so much more than this girl. <laughs> well, you could have, you could have knocked me back with a, with a feather. I was just, well, we desire. And so to this today, to this today, uh, I still do. We desire so much more. Than squirrels. And we do. I agree. We certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We seized the day. <laughs> the brilliant Greg Kin there. Honestly, you've got to check out the full interview. He talks about UFOs, why he'll go to hell for what he did after hours in a church, uh, how his mum inspired the brilliant album names, and so much more as well. Episode 22. I heartily recommend you scroll back and give that a lesson. Next up, we're going to hear from a Dutchman now, a flautist, a keyboard player and a yodeler. Yep, you heard that right. Thijs van Leer from Focus joined me on episode 20 to talk about the band's worldwide hit. Now, we talk about the, the early days. I mean, the, the first song which really put you on the map was, was House of the King. And that, that kind of brought you big exposure, didn't it? Yeah, in Holland and in the Flemish part of Belgium, yes. But in... In England, for instance, it didn't become a big hit. Maybe it was, there was some play on the radio, but it was not a, the big thing. The big thing was actually Hocus Pocus, the second 
single. Absolutely. And you mentioned Hocus Pocus there. It was, it was big. It was big everywhere. You, you toured all over the place. Big in America. It was big here in the UK as well, as you said, and yep. big all over the world. I mean, yep. just take us back to the beginning of that. Where did that song come from? Then? It actually started with the guitarist, Jan Ackerman. He started to play. And it was sounding great. I mean, one of the best licks ever, I think, in mm. rock and roll history. Yeah. And then uh, he stopped suddenly and Pierre, the drummer, he did a drum solo, a fill of two bars. And I started yodeling behind my organ and for the first time of my life. <laughs> and that was it. That was the song. And then we went to the studio and we recorded it and it became a big hit. So where did where did the yodel idea come from? Did it Was it just something spontaneous that came from within you? I never did it before. <laughs> it just came out of that moment, actually. So I can't say too much about it. And I did it kind of in tune. I think it was uh, sounding immediately, uh, let's say, adequate. Yeah. <laughs> It fit yeah. really well. And it was something different, very, very different, wasn't it? Because people weren't yodeling in, in pop culture back then. No, there was not, not much yodel in, in pop culture there. I think when there was a girl in Holland who did it, and there was a, a girl, she was called Ima Sumak. She did a bit of voice traveling, but uh, no... No, we were actually the first. Really good. And then I've, I've, I was watching videos of you of you recently doing this, and you, you still manage to pull off some of the yodel now, don't you? But you like to leave the rest of the, the high notes to the crowd. The very high note I cannot mo make anymore since my 50s, dear. <laughs> so the yodel itself I can do, but the, wow, the, the go up, it doesn't happen anymore. Lori! <laughs> Not now. And the guitarist is helping me and... Uh, and the public, as you say, yeah. So when that song broke big and you got to travel the world and play, I mean, what was it like as a Dutch band going across to America and, and performing over there on their TV shows and things like that? How did that feel? Yeah, that was actually very nice because we had a kind of a small audience and not knowing that we were playing in front of so many million of people that were looking at TV. So there, there was a kind of a... A cozy feeling about it, so we we were not aware of of, of the, the many millions that looked at us. The Don Kirshner show we did, and the many shows, and a show we did with uh, Gladys Knight announcing us. Maybe you saw that on a on a video. Yes, that's on YouTube. Yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic stuff. And what was it like touring America then? Yeah, yeah. And we started in America with as a supporting act for other groups. We worked with Frank Zappa once with uh, Beach Boys, Joe Cocker, nine times in the Midwest. And we played with Chick Corea, who just died, unfortunately, with his electric group. But he was supporting Fantastic. us also in the Midwest. And Jay Giles' band we worked with, Edgar Winter. Wow. Many others. Some incredible yeah. names. The wonderful Thijs van Leer from Focus there. We've still got a couple more people to hear from. And next I'm going to play you this wonderful story to inspire you, perhaps. It's a great story of being a fan of a band and then actually going on to become a full-blown member of that same band in later life. I spoke with brilliant guitarist Damon Johnson on episode 19. 
Yeah, that story is is really incredible. It's um, I never tire of uh, thinking about it, much less talking about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, because Thin Lizzy was, you know, they were on my Mount Rushmore of most influential bands on my life, on my music, my guitar playing, later on my songwriting, uh, you know, just massive. And it still doesn't feel real, honestly, Paul. And I know for you guys over there in the UK, I mean, Thin Lizzy, they kind of occupy the same space that a band like Aerosmith does here or a band like Van Halen does here in, in the US. Just, just one of the greatest bands of all time. So it's just been a joy, you know, to stand next to Scott Gorham, my hero, uh, and now my great friend. You know, he's carried me to other places that I would have never gotten to go and perform. And, um, you know, the passion that Thin Lizzy fans have for the music, it, it rivals no other band. And the way that those fans accepted me and, and embraced, you know, whatever energy and whatever musicality I brought to it, is just again mate one of the great honors of my career because uh i would be the same way you know if i went to see thin lizzy and they had a new guitar player i would be standing there thinking hey this guy better be good you know <laughs> he better be good or i'm gonna get very frustrated <laughs> so uh yeah another just another career highlight for me and, and i'm so proud to be a part of that story can you remember when you first saw or heard Thin Lizzy or anything like that? What, what got you into Thin Lizzy? What was it that drew, drew you in then to start with? Paul, it's another incredible story. I was 15 years old in 1979, and I went with my mates to the auditorium about two hours north of the little town we grew up in, and we went to see Ted Nugent. We had not heard anything about an opening act. We didn't know. We didn't really care. We're like, you know, we love Ted Nugent's guitar playing and his songs. And so I remember my friend's dad, he pulled us, he pulled in the front of the venue to let us out. And they had one of those big signs out front that said, tonight, Ted Nugent, special guest, Thin Lizzy. And I remember saying to my friend, like, oh, I've heard their song. They got that song, The Boys Are Back in Town. That's all I knew. Mm -hmm. So we go in right as the house lights go down. You know, we're standing on the floor, the smoke, the sirens are kicking off. And then there's this big power cord and the spotlights come on. And this six foot four lanky, skinny black guy playing a Fender precision bass that had a mirrored pit guard on it. And he's shining the reflection into the audience, <laughs> onto the girls. Brother, that was like an explosion. Not it, it, me and my friends. We were all like, "What the fuck is happening? <laughs> what is this? this? Is crazy?" And uh, you know, over the course of the next forty-five minutes, they pummeled my teenage brain <laughs> with awesome song after awesome song, great riffs, great songs, and that was it. That was it. You know, I went to the record store the next day. I bought three albums and I saved my money. And I think the next month I went back and bought three more. So that was it. I was on my way. And then Lizzie was heavy, heavy, heavy in my listening, essential listening, really for the rest of my life after that night. Yeah. 
Damon Johnson there. As well as working with Thin Lizzy, Damon toured for years as part of Alice Cooper's band. He's currently working with Leonard Skinner and in the 90s was frontman with successful rocker's brother Kane as well. Also on that same episode was another interview with Steve Weltman, who has an incredible history in the music business. He was the former manager of David Bowie. He's worked with Elvis. He's got stories about the Beatles and was the manager of Ken Hensley of Uriah Heep when Ken sadly passed away a couple of years ago. It's a great double interview episode well worth a listen go back to episode 19 to check those ones out and speaking of Uriah Heep see this thing isn't just thrown together you know that leads me on to the last clip of the show now the last surviving member of the iconic lineup of the group Mick Box is pocket sized but packs a punch with his guitar Uriah Heep came through the scene at the end of the 60s at the same time as Deep Purple and Black Sabbath so in this clip we talk all about that era so let's go back then to, to 1970 when Very Heavy, Very Humble came out. I mean, you were seen as the forefront of, of, of the movement, weren't you? The heavy rock movement, the heavy metal movement, the hard rock, that sort of stuff with the likes of Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And what was it like around that time then when you were, when you were a part of that movement moving forward? Well, it was very, very uh, vibrant time, I have to say, very creative, vibrant time because we were coming out of an era of um, late 60s of, of Bands being all in suits and doing dance moves and uh, little combos behind them. Um, you know, it was all very nice and polite and sweet and lovely. You know, some great songs came out of that. But then we come out as almost a rebellion with the long hair and uh, it wasn't like a Marshall stack on your shoes, <laughs> you know, which I thought was brilliant until I found that everybody else got them. So I wasn't as tall as I thought I was going to be. And it was just a creative time. You know, we just, you know, we, we, we bought, you know, Marshall stacks, for real, you know, um, with, with, with bigger, everything was bigger, better, louder. And um, it was that whole movement that was going on at the time. It, it was a fantastic time, I have to say. And, of course, with record companies, you signed for, uh, with a record company for six or seven albums, you know. So you, you grew with the label, the label grew with you, you know. So, there was a, you know, they allowed you to, to take your music wherever you wanted. There was nobody dictating anything, you know, um, which was, I think, which is why so much of that music stood the test of time and people still like hearing now you know even in the library and in their homes absolutely yeah and you talk about the movement there and the, the time and what was it like within during the scene then because i spoke to uh, steve diggle from the buzzcocks and he says it was, uh, it was a great camaraderie amongst the punks of that time the pistols and the clash and that and then there's all the mods i spoke to kenny jones and he says the mods were all a big one big happy family so what was it like um with with the hard rock movement that was coming through the rebellious time it was pretty much the same as that i have to admit a great respect between bands um but, you know, it was competitive. I'll be um, foolish not to say that, you know. We always tried to outdo each other. You know, but it was, there was that camaraderie there, yeah, you know, that we were going through the same thing together, you know, almost united in as much as we were writing the new, new, new book, if you like. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> a new book of where the music goes, you know. So, um, and, and I think that, that, that was, it, that's, it was such a vibrant time with, with fashion. I mean, coming out of... Um, the late 60s into the 70s where all these bands were happening, you know, really there was only fashion, music and sport that people got involved in, you know. Uh, nowadays, there's, there's so many diversions. You, know, you, can, you can do do more than that on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, that's what it was like, you know, and they were all intrinsically linked, you know, the footballers were looking like rock stars and, and whatever, you know. It was, it was great. It was a great time. Yeah, yeah. Loved it. 
Brilliant. And in terms of, um, you mentioned a bit of competitive edge as well amongst the bands. I mean, one thing that stood you out amongst those others, I mean, the others had Ozzy, they had Gillen, they had, I don't know, Plant, that sort of stuff. Whereas you guys, David was brilliant frontman, but you had the harmonies as well, didn't you? Yeah, I think that was very important for Heap because we always had five strong singers. So the harmony became an important trademark for the band, as much as the Hammond organ and as much as my guitar wah-wah solos, you know. Um, it kind of, um, th- they were the things that we, we tried on. In fact, if I try and um, explain that a little better, if you took a song into the band and we applied all those things, it became heat very quickly. <laughs> 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 if you know what I mean, you know, you can have something quite off the wall, but take it into the band and put all those elements in, all those trademarks in, and suddenly it's heap again, you know. The wonderful Mick Box from Uriah Heap there. Episode 23, if you want to hear more stories of Heap and David Byron, Ken Hensley, Glee Kerslake, and much more. But you don't have to stop there, of course. There are so many great interviews with many other massive rock stars across the series. I think we're at 15 or 16 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers included, with more big-name interview guests still to come. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast series on whatever podcast platform you use, perhaps the one you're listening to this on right now, so that you don't miss any more future episodes. And that includes the brilliant This Day Rocks episodes too. Please do check them out. And give Vintage Rock Pod a like or a follow on the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All you've got to do is search for Vintage Rock Pod. It would be much appreciated. There's a new thingy as well I've discovered on uh, Facebook recently. I don't think it's new, but it's something I've only just seen. So if you follow Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, please do take a few seconds to visit the page and on there go to the Reviews tab and just give it a five-star rating. It takes literally seconds, hardly any time at all. But if you are feeling generous with your time, you can leave a lovely review on there as well. Super easy to do and it looks nice when you get a few five-star ratings, doesn't it? And that goes for anywhere else you're listening as well, whether that's on uh, Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify as well. You can click uh, the five-star rating on there too now. So please do just leave a rating wherever you listen to this. It makes such a big difference. Thank you. Well, that's it for me then. Until the next episode, remember if you come across anyone who isn't a big fan of rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.